Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. We come to the end of uh, our uh, series in uh, the Old Testament book of Ruth tonight, uh, and I want to actually ask you a question as we get there. It's a visual question. So, here we go, providing the technology all works. Does anyone have any idea what this is? Sand, maybe, not a bad guess. Mars, not quite, though nearly as weird. Hmm. Any other thoughts? You guys are in kind of the ballpark already, actually. This is a really kind of zoomed-in, close-up version of a much bigger photo. Here it is for you. Uh, This is a photo of uh, Uluru from the air. Uh, Yep, kind of sand, rock, that kind of thing, and uh, nearly as weird as Mars. You know there are fish on top of Ayers Rock? How weird is that? There are fish on top of Ayers Rock. They get these tiny little, they get evaporated up in the, in the, um, when it's hot there because their eggs are so small and then they hatch on top in these little pools. Anyway, that's beside the point. That's not even in my notes. That's just a fact for free at that point. Uluru, right? You zoom out and there it is. There's Uluru. Uh, how about this one? They found this a bit easier, the next one this morning. Hmm. Can someone click next on the slide for me? Oh, nope, too far. I just spoiled it. Ah. <laughs> oh. The big reveal is done for. There you go. So, you know, it's a, it's a parrot. Good guess, yeah. It's actually, in case you're wondering, it's an eclectus parrot. They're native to the northeast of Australia and to um, uh, Papua New Guinea and a few other places in the, in the Pacific. Anyway, but there you go. You, you zoom in and you, you, you see some things, but not everything, and you zoom out for the full picture, right, to see what it is that's really going on. Uh, when you see things in extreme close-up, it's actually just hard to know precisely where you are, precisely what you're looking at, precisely what's happening. Uh, When your head gets stuck in the details, it's hard to know what's really going on for you. When your vision is narrowed down to what's most immediately in front of you, it becomes very easy to miss what matters most. Uh, Ordinary life, it turns out, is a close-up, details, narrow vision kind of affair, and rightly so. Uh, There's enough going on for any one of us uh, in our everyday life with just getting through the week and caring for those we love and perhaps also trying to eat healthy and do a bit of exercise. There's enough going on for us that we actually just can't see all that far ahead. Uh, Sometimes with months or years of hindsight, you might gain some clarity about what was really going on at that particular point in your past. But actually, a lot of the time, you can't see what's going on right here in the moment. Uh, And that fact, actually, that, that we live our life in the details, in the ordinary kind of trenches of life, if you like, that means that sometimes you might actually ask the question, where is it actually all going? What is it that God is doing in my life? And and how does the big picture of what God might be doing in the world and the universe, how does that connect to what I'm focused on in my own life right here and now? The big picture of God's purposes can seem very disconnected from the trenches of ordinary life. But one of the beautiful things about the book of Ruth that we've been working through is that it teaches us that it's precisely in the trenches of ordinary life that God works out his big picture purposes for the world. Uh, In your Bibles, you'll see that the book of Ruth follows on from the book of Judges. Now, let me read for you the last verse of that book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. It's the way the writer of Judges talks about everything having basically fallen apart in Israel. No one cares about what the Lord thinks about anything. Everyone just does whatever they want, and it's a total freaking nightmare. Judges describes a very dark time in Israel's history. And it turns out that it's in exactly that time that Ruth is set. We go from the last verse of Judges to the very first verse of the book of Ruth. 
in the days when the judges ruled. Fast forward then to the end of the book of Ruth in chapter 4, which we've just heard read for us by Ben. Uh, The very last word of the book of Ruth is this. The last word is David. Uh, What you see in this book is that it bridges two different epochs of the history of God's people. The disaster of the time of the judges on one hand, and the eventual establishment of a king after God's own heart, the greatest figure in the Old Testament, King David himself. What is it that lies in between those two epochs of Israel's history? How do we get from one place to the other? It's through this story of two widows and a man who shows kindness to them. It turns out that the everyday concerns of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz in the trenches of ordinary life are actually the medium and means through which God works out his big picture purposes for the whole world. What Ruth can teach us then is how the big picture and ordinary life relate to one another, how God's grand purposes for his people and his world intersect with what you and I are doing in our lives every day. And so we're going to unpack that lesson a little bit under the two headings you can see on the screen there. Firstly, uh, what's God doing? And secondly, therefore, what, what are we supposed to be doing? Point one, what is God doing? It's a question we should ask more often, I think. Don't you think? What is God actually doing? What is going on? What is he working in our lives right now? Uh, One of the most striking things about the book of Ruth is that it turns out God isn't really a major character. Uh, God never speaks in this book, and the characters do a lot of talking about God, but they never actually speak to God. They express their hope that God will show kindness and bring blessing. They clearly love God. They're clearly committed to God and trust God, but they never actually directly engage him in prayer. We might genuinely ask, therefore, what is God doing here? Is he he even present at all? What's he up to? Despite the appearances, though, God is always present throughout this story. Uh, The book of Ruth is a really brilliant example of the way that ancient Hebrew narrative actually works. Uh, Often it relies a lot on subtle allusions and suggestions to make some really deep points. Uh, God is always present in this story, even though we don't see the kind of mind-blowing miracles or dreams or visions that we get in other parts of the Bible. And the writer of this book has been quietly but deliberately drawing our attention to the presence of God all the way through. So, for example, there are the moments where seemingly random occurrences move the plot along in major ways. Back in chapter 2, we read, As it happened, Ruth came to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Just like that. And a few verses later, just then, Boaz came up from Bethlehem. Are these really random events? Is that really what's going on here? Is Is it completely arbitrary, these things just happen to happen this way. Actually, no, there's a hint here that something else is going on. What seems completely random in human life might be contributing to a story that God is weaving. Then there's the way that the writer of Ruth uses very particular words. When Boaz, for example, in chapter 3, is startled awake by the cool breeze on his uncovered legs, the writer uses a Hebrew word which is a theologically loaded word. He uses the word uh, that we translate here, startled, that the prophets in the Old Testament use to describe the terror that people experience when they come into the presence of God. Boaz is startled awake, but there's a hint here from the author. No, no, God is present here. God is moving and active. Something is going on that's beyond what these characters actually know. Then there's the concept of kindness throughout this book. In chapter 1, Naomi tells her daughters-in-law to stay in Moab, and she says to them, May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you've dealt with the dead and with me. 
the Hebrew word for kindly is another loaded Old Testament word that throughout the Old Testament is used almost exclusively to describe the character of God himself, his loving kindness, his covenant faithfulness. Uh, But here that word is attributed to just two ordinary everyday humans going about their lives. It's attributed to Naomi's daughters-in-law who have treated her and her family with godlike kindness. The actions of Boaz and Ruth are described using the same word in in chapters 2 and 3. They become embodiments, if you like, of what God is like in his character. God's kindness and faithfulness are present here in these events through these regular people and in the trenches of ordinary life. Of course, you can add to that the way that uh, we saw last week, Boaz becoming the answer to his own blessing that he spoke over Ruth, uh, uh, um, blessing her and asking that she might find refuge under the wings of God. And she turns around and says to him, spread your wing over me. He becomes the answer to that blessing that he spoke over her. And actually, what's really going on here is that the God of Israel is giving her shelter through his servant Boaz. God doesn't speak in the book of Ruth. And while he's frequently spoken about, he's never spoken to. But he is present and working and right there in these everyday people through the events of their ordinary lives. And it reaches a grand crescendo in chapter 4, which speaks again and again about redemption. We've already seen in chapter 3 how Boaz promises when Naomi's crazy plan comes off through the bravery of Ruth to actually, in some senses, kind of force him to actually say, yes, I'll marry Ruth. It comes off in chapter 3. And Boaz promises that he will be be that kinsman redeemer who they so desperately need. In chapter 4, then, we see how he actually makes good on his promise. But there are actually not just one redeemer in Boaz, but four redeemers in this chapter. First of all, there's the unnamed person who has first dibs on redeeming Naomi's property, and Ruth, of course, along with it. Uh, He appears in another one of those seemingly random moments. Boaz has decided that he wants to marry Ruth. He makes a plan, and he goes to the city gate. So we read at the beginning of chapter 4, no sooner had Boaz gone up to the gate than the next of kin came passing by. Just like that, the very person Boaz needed to speak to to move this forward just turns up. Uh, Then, of course, there's Boaz himself, uh, another redeemer, who becomes uh, Ruth and Naomi's redeemer uh, when the first in line bows out. There's a third redeemer here, though, as well, uh, the child who Ruth and Boaz bear, Obed. Uh, Listen to what the women of Bethlehem say about this child, verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. You notice that? What's, what's going on there? You kind of expect them maybe to be blessing Boaz as their redeemer. But no, she says, they're talking about the one who's been born by Ruth. The boy Obed is also a redeemer. He is the one who will look after Naomi in her old age. And even though Ruth has borne him to Boaz, he's called Naomi's son. Did you notice that? In the background to this is a law in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament that provides for the continuation of the family line by having a relative of the widow's deceased husband marry that person and produce children. And the agreement in this kind of arrangement was that the firstborn son would be counted not as the child of the man who's fathered them biologically, but as the child of the dead man 
who would inherit his property when he came of age and ensure that his name was carried on through the generations. Naomi's too old now to bear children, and so Boaz marries her daughter-in-law, and their first son is counted as Naomi's son, as the inheritor of all that belonged to her husband. And he's going to provide for her now in her old age. Obed is a redeemer as well. Uh, But there's a fourth redeemer here too. Uh, The book finishes with a short genealogy, right? A list of names, who was the father of who, and all that kind of business. Uh, One of those bits in the Bible um, that sometimes you kind of just go, oh, please, 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 when we get to that bit, let me not be rostered on Bible reading. All of those lists of names, it's a disaster. It turns out, actually, these genealogies that are so easy for us to pass over, though, are deeply important. Uh, And here in Ruth, this list of names tells us why it is that this particular story of these three, in many ways, unremarkable people in the trenches of ordinary life, has been preserved for us as scripture. Verse 17, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, and he became the father of Jesse, the father of David. What's the point of the writer drawing our attention to this here? The point is that all the way throughout this story, rich as it is with the concerns of everyday life, God has been working to fulfill his purpose to redeem his people by giving them a king who would set things right. Naomi's emptiness is filled. We've seen that beautiful way in the progression of the story in which she leaves Moab empty, and she's filled by the kindness of Boaz and of Ruth. The one who'd lost her husbands and sons has a son once more. But even more than that, in the big picture of things, Ruth and Boaz are being grafted into Israel's royal family line becoming the great-grandparents of the mighty King David himself. You see, this was God's purpose all along. And in fact, the writer continues to make that abundantly clear. There's, There's actually only two times in the whole book of Ruth when God is described as directly intervening in the, in the things that are happening in the story. Uh, the first is providing uh, food to famine-struck Israel in chapter 1. The Lord had considered his people and given them food. The second is the conception of Obed. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord made her conceive and she bore a son. There near the beginning of chapter 1, there at the end of chapter 4, two moments where God is spoken of as directly intervening in the issues that we're reading about. They kind of bookend, if you like, the whole story. You see, it's God who gives grain to Israel, which is what Naomi, why Naomi goes back to Israel in the first place. And it's God who brings about the end goal of the story in the birth of Obed. He's the one who set the whole thing in motion. He's the one who brings it to his climax. He takes the stuff of ordinary life, you see, and through it he brings about his big picture purposes. Uh, Even, of course, when it was impossible for Naomi and Ruth and Boaz to see what was going on in the big picture, and even in the midst of the gloom and despair of Israel's depravity in the days when the judges ruled, God was at work. What was he doing? He was bringing about redemption. Uh, What does that mean for us? Uh, How does the way that God works out the big picture in the trenches of ordinary life actually help us in living our own lives? That's what we're going to talk about now, point two. Uh, What are we supposed to do with all of this? Uh, One of the most fascinating things about uh, all of this is that uh, the main characters in the book of Ruth have no idea what God's doing in the big picture here. Obed might well have seen his grandson David become the king, but there's no way that Naomi or Ruth or Boaz would have seen it. They saw the Lord's faithfulness and kindness to them in their own day, but they didn't see actually where it was all going in God's purposes. Like you and me, so often what filled their vision was uh, what was going on in the trenches, 
They just need to get by. They need to provide for their daily needs. So while on the one hand, the book of Ruth teaches us that God is at work in and through our lives in all kinds of ways to bring his big picture purposes uh, into, uh, into fruition, it also teaches us how to live when we can't actually see what God is doing. There are three things to notice about how uh, the main characters here uh, act throughout the book with all of their concerns right in front of them and not knowing what's going on in the big picture. Three things that are worth noticing about how they act. Uh, Firstly, they always act thoughtfully. They come up with plans. They make decisions. They go, this is what I'm going to do. They're very deliberate and thoughtful about it. Uh, Secondly, they act in trust. Uh, Even though, as we've said, uh, they don't uh, directly say, uh, Lord, our God, please bless us in this endeavour, they frequently have the name of the Lord on their lips seeking his kindness, seeking his grace and goodness. They act in trust. And thirdly, they act in grace. Uh, They're all the time uh, seeking the good of other people, not just of themselves, seeking to bless those around them. There's examples of this in every chapter, but we're going to zoom in on what Boaz does in this final chapter, chapter 4, that we've been reading tonight. Uh, Firstly, Boaz acts deliberately and thoughtfully. Uh, He thinks through carefully how it is to achieve his goal, which, of course, is to get Ruth as his wife. Uh, He cares about Naomi, of course. But Ruth is really his goal. Uh, And so what does he do? Well, firstly, he takes advantage of his standing in the community. He's a well-respected man. We know that from what we've read so far in this book. And so when he turns up at the town gate where where business is done in a town like Bethlehem, when he turns up there and says to 10 guys who are elders in the city, hey, come and sit down so you can hear this case I want to bring, they go, sure. He takes advantage of his standing in the community. Uh, Secondly, he uses his knowledge of the laws of Israel, uh, outlining his own desire to redeem Naomi's husband in a way that's going to, Naomi's land rather, uh, to redeem Naomi's land in a way that's actually going to make sense and be a good legal case that's presented that everyone will understand and everyone knows whose responsibilities lie where. Uh, But he's also a bit sneaky about it. Uh, He knows, remember, that he's not first in line to redeem this property. And so when he first brings this case to the the unnamed first redeemer in this chapter, uh, he places all the emphasis on the land that the redeemer would acquire. Verse 3 says, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our kinsman Elimelech. Uh, The land, of course, is a good deal. Always good in an an agrarian society like that to have extra land to plant things on and grow to eat and maybe to sell. And the first redeemer goes, sure, I'll take it. Uh, That's potentially a problem. We're supposed to, at that moment, when the first redeemer goes, yeah, I'll redeem it, sure. We're supposed to go, no, this is not how it's supposed to end. What's going to happen to Boaz and Ruth? But he's been very clever about it, you see. Of course the redeemer wants the land, and he says that he'll take it. But then Boaz makes his killer move. He says, if you redeem the land, you get this foreign woman with it that you have to marry and give children to so that they will inherit the land. The ownership of that land will one day pass back from the Redeemer who's paid for it in the first place to somebody else. It'll be their land that he's paid for out of his own pocket. And suddenly it's not such a good deal at all. And the guy with first dibs relinquishes his right of redemption, allowing Boaz to step in. Boaz, you see, brings everything he has to bear on this situation. He thinks through all of the possibilities and eventualities. He acts deliberately and thoughtfully. Uh, Secondly, Boaz acts in trust. Uh, you see, there's no guarantee that this plan, as clever as it is, will, will actually come off. He, he might actually end up not getting what he wants. It could be that even when he makes his killer move, the Redeemer says, you know what, I think it's a good thing to care for widows and orphans and to make sure that children are provided for, and so sure, I'll take Ruth as well. There's a real risk that Boaz's plan might not come off here. 
Uh, one option, given he must have known that it might not work, would just be to go, it's too hard. I'm just, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to do nothing. I'm just going to let the first redeemer have the rights and, and not speak about it anymore. But that's not what he does. He doesn't hold back from action. He presses on with his plan. He does so trusting that God will take care of the outcome, even though he himself can't control it. Uh, the writer uh, hasn't recorded Boaz praying to God, asking him for success, uh, but he has declared his intentions in a way that uh, clearly leaves the outcome in the Lord's hands. Uh, back in chapter 3, in his conversation, his whispered conversation at night at the threshing floor with Ruth, he says, As the Lord lives, I will act as redeemer for you. In essence, he says, this is my intention. I want to be your redeemer. I want to do what you're asking me to do. And as the Lord lives, I'll do that. In other words, it's up to the one true and living God to grant success in this endeavor. Boaz acts in trust. Uh, thirdly, Boaz acts graciously. He clearly wants to marry Ruth, and he uh, thoughtfully and uh, deliberately and trusting God strives toward that goal. But at the same time, you see, his plan ensures that even if he doesn't get what he wants, Naomi and Ruth will be provided for. He seeks what his heart desires, but at the same time he puts the needs of those two widowers ahead of his own because whether or not the first redeemer takes the land, they'll be okay. Whether or not Boaz gets what he wants, Ruth and Naomi will be okay. He acts in grace. Thoughtfully, deliberately, trusting God with grace, even though he can't see the big picture. He doesn't know that God has, has already preordained that, yes, this is the line I've chosen to bring my king to Israel. He's just trying to live his ordinary life. Uh, is that how you live your life? Is that how you make decisions? Is that how you walk forward in the world? There are alternative ways to live, of course. Uh, if you can't see the big picture, and especially if you can't see how God is at work, uh, you might be tempted uh, not to act thoughtfully or deliberately at all. Uh, that means either you kind of just jump into something, you go, oh, that looks good, I guess I'll do that, without really giving any thought to it at all. Or actually what you do is to, is to not do anything, to go, I don't know how that's going to work out, so I'm going to hold myself back from it. Uh, it might actually even be um, that you kind of go, there, there is a big picture, I know that God's got a big picture and a big plan, but I don't know how it intersects with my own life. And so I can't do anything. Because I don't know if this is the thing that God has preordained for me to do, or this is the thing that God has called me to do, or maybe that thing, and so I'm just not going to do anything at all. It might, of course, just be that uh, you know what you want, but you know you might not get it, and so it's too scary to try. Uh, also, if you're really a doubting, particularly God's working in your life, then your vision might get so narrow, so uh, close in on just the things right in front of you that are concerning you that, that you fail to see opportunities to serve others actually in grace as well. That you can actually just be so uh, um, lost in the, the weeds of what's going on in your own life that you don't see those around you who, who need your assistance, those to whom you might be God's channel of grace and kindness. Here's the thing, though. Uh, Ruth shows us that the God who made the whole universe works out his purposes in the trenches of ordinary life. He uses people like Naomi and Ruth and Boaz to do remarkable things that they never saw happen. He works, you see, through people like you and me, even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it. Uh, who knows what God might be doing in and through you right now? Who knows what effects you might be having on others, effects for the kingdom, effects for the good of the world that we live in. Who knows what God might be doing through you right now? And if that's how God works, 
then you see we can just kind of get on with making plans and decisions. I don't have to worry about whether or not you might make the wrong decision. It turns out God is big enough to deal with that and that his purpose will be fulfilled in love and kindness to his creation. And so what Ruth teaches us here is actually just to be deliberate and thoughtful, yes, to trust God in all that you do, yes, to be gracious to others, yes, and also just to get on with living that life, to trust that God will be at work because nothing can derail his purposes. Boaz has huge confidence in this moment, a kind of brash confidence. There's no human reason to think that this is all going to play out the way that he wants it to. Naomi has this remarkable confidence when she sends Ruth down to the threshing floor with this nutso plan to try and kind of, you know, force Boaz into marriage. Ruth has enormous confidence and bravery when she goes herself to the threshing floor to follow that plan through. What's going to generate that kind of confidence in you? That's the question, isn't it? What will give you that kind of boldness, that kind of love, that kind of drive? It's knowing that the big picture, that God's purposes for all creation are being worked out in and through you. And the thing is that we actually have even more reason to act with that kind of confidence than Boaz or Naomi or Ruth did, because God has given us more of the picture, you see. We know where it's all going. As far as he knows, as far as Boaz knows, the story ends with Obed. Great, job done. As far as the writer of the book of Ruth knows, the last word is David. But you see, God has spoken another word to you and to me. Uh, though Boaz uh, and uh, sorry, through Boaz and Ruth, uh, God gave Israel a king. But even David, it turns out, wasn't the end of the line. Uh, in Matthew one, there's another genealogy, another list of names, and Boaz and Ruth are mentioned again. I'm not going to read the whole genealogy for you. Don't worry. Boaz and Ruth are brought into another genealogy at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. So much we already know. But the line of David goes on. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of... Until the royal line of Israel reaches its climax. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. And so you see, just as a chorus of women in Bethlehem had once proclaimed that a son was born to Naomi, so a chorus of angels outside Bethlehem proclaimed that to you is born this day a saviour in the city of David, who is Christ the Lord, a redeemer for you and for me and for the whole world. But the story doesn't even end there. In God's grace and kindness, you see, he takes you and me up into that story too. Even that isn't the whole picture, what happened there in Bethlehem at Jesus' birth, because as we've heard in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, through him we've been destined for adoption as children of God according to the purpose of him who accomplishes everything according to his counsel and will. We have the full picture. He's made known to us the mystery of his will to gather up all things in him, in Jesus. He is the goal. He is where it's all heading. He's the big picture. And you see, he's gathered us up with him to be a part of that grand vision because the very same one who made the stars has joined us in the trenches of ordinary life. He joined us in our ordinary life and died an extraordinary death, trusting his father with an absolute trust, thoughtfully, deliberately going about his life and his death as well in order to show grace to us. And so he died your death and mine, so that in all the ups and downs of our ordinary lives, we can know his extraordinary love. We have a redeemer who Naomi could never have dreamed of, the book of Ruth ends with 
a last word of hope, David. But God has given us the last word for all eternity, Jesus. And so we walk forward in confident trust, knowing that the big picture is being worked out in the ordinary details of our lives as we live to the praise of his glory. Let's pray that our Father would help us to do just that. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, it's such a remarkable thing to think that you who created everything might be at work in each one of us here through our lives, that your purposes that encompass the whole of creation from the beginning to the end include us. But Father, we trust the story that you've told us in the book of Ruth. We trust that you are at work even when we can't see it, even when we don't know where it's going, because we know we've seen where it's all ending up in Jesus. And so, Father, we thank you for his gracious kindness to us, the love and kindness that you've shown to us in him. And, Father, we ask that you might fit us to live every day to the praise of his glory, boldly walking forward in this world as we seek to bring your light and peace and love and truth to bear. We ask this for your glory, in the power of your spirit, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.